0: Hello friends. This is the Tarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's NeetartsFriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. James writes in James 5, 15 and 16, If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Consider the following question. Do you have someone, or someones, who you meet with regularly for the purpose of mutually confessing your sins? Which of the following answers comes the closest to describing you? Is it, yes, I have that person we meet weekly for the purpose of confession, or yes, we meet monthly for the purpose of confession. I have no regular plan, but I do have someone that I've confessed to once or twice back when. I know that I could hit them up if I needed to confess something. Confessing sins sounds awful. I would never do that. That sounds outdated and old-fashioned. I wish I had someone to confess to. Because that sounds cathartic and healing, but I don't know where to find this person. Or is it, my schedule's so full, I just don't know when I would do something like this? Maybe you say, I don't believe in this. I, I only confess to God, kind of. And sometimes, or that's what I tell myself anyways. Or maybe you say, I'm not Catholic. Like, isn't this just a Catholic thing? Maybe you say, I guess my therapist sometimes fulfills this purpose in a way. Or, I don't have anyone like this, but the truth be told, I don't really want to do anything like this. Maybe you say, I have trouble trusting other people to be safe with my information. It's not that I don't want this, but I've been burned. Maybe you say... I would probably just tell my confessor that it's all good. I struggle to admit what's really going on to myself. I'm kind of a lockbox until things boil over. I struggle to be vulnerable and let my guard down enough for confession to be meaningful. Maybe you say, I have experienced spiritual abuse and trauma around confession of sins, and the entire topic feels triggering. Maybe you say, Like, confess what? I'm good with my life choices. Maybe you say, I tell myself that my spouse fulfills this role, even though the closest we actually come to confession is resolving conflicts, and our confessions are often more like explanations. I'm sorry that I did X. It's just that when you did Y, then I did X. Actually, I'm just not very vulnerable with anyone else. Maybe you say, isn't confession just for people who struggle with addictions and other taboo kinds of sins? I'm not like that. I wouldn't know what to say. I tend to think of myself as a pretty good person. Or maybe you answer in a different way. The question that we discussed in groups on Sunday, and so I would invite you to reflect on this Or if you're watching or listening with someone else chat with them, which of those answers resonates the most with you? No judgment, uh, complete safety, which answer or answers resonates with you the most? We all come to this conversation from different places. If you didn't answer with the first answers, uh, yes, I already do this, you are not weird. The stats say that the vast majority of people, Christians, don't have a regular practice of confessing their sins to someone else. And we might be suffering from that. So, we're going to spend our time today exploring these various answers. Not beating ourselves up for where we're at, but exploring our answers and imagining what it would look like to be a part of a community that regularly confesses sins to one another. So, starting out, it's possible that you relate to the spiritual abuse and trauma answer where you share something dark and kind of a shameful secret with one person and then you're forced to tell an entire group of people somehow or maybe someone broke your confidence and shared your secrets and that kind of stuff is not healing. It's coercive, it's abusive, it feels like blackmail and in the letter of James, James is not advocating for Christians to force other people to tell their darkest, most shameful secrets in public or to the whole church. James is not saying, look, unless you tell everyone your darkest, most shameful secrets, you're not going to receive God's saving work or you're not going to receive physical healing. That is not what James is saying. James is advocating for the mutual confession of sins. And mutual is an important word there. It's where the information you share with me is every bit as vulnerable as the information I share with you. So it's not a picture of ugly blackmail. It's a picture of beautiful friendship. The people who you are the closest to tend to be people who know the fullest extent of who you are They know the good and the bad and the ugly, and they love you. You are safe. That's more of the picture that James is painting. So if someone ever forced you to confess something publicly that you did not want to confess, I am truly sorry. That was twisted and wrong. I'm sorry for the wounds you received, and my hope is... At least speaking for the Neatarts Friends Church community, you are safe with our little church family. Uh, A healing community practices mutual confession of sins, and so confession is only healing when it comes from your authentic heart, never from fear of coercive power. The foundation for mutual confession is the understanding that we're all in the process of healing. Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We are all in the process of healing from the effects of sin. Now when most people hear the word sin, they think about doing bad things, probably a taboo list. The Bible has two different words for sin, hamartia, hamartano, and less than 25% of the time does sin mean what you do. Over 75% of the time, the way that the word sin shows up in the New Testament, sin means it's a condition that you are in. It's something that's impacting you and affecting you and enslaving you and keeping you from being who you truly are and who you were truly created to be. God created the entire world to flourish and to be good and sin is a distortion of that flourishing and that goodness. Underneath all sin, you find people who are trying to meet a legitimate need in a way that is not working. And so sin has this way of distorting our view of reality. Often our own greatest sources of suffering are the lies that we tell ourselves and we believe like you're not enough or you're not loved or you're on your own. You'll always be alone. You're unlovable. You're only worth what you can do. You are what you own. You are what other people say about you. And so we take those lies. We tend to project those lies not only onto ourselves, but onto the way that we view God and our view of God gets distorted. And so now God seems like God is distant or God is harsh, God's a mean taskmaster, God is vengeful, God is punishing, or or God's dead. Theologian Herbert McCabe says, sin does not change God's view of us, it infects our view of God's view of us. Theologian Justo Gonzalez says, sin is the violation of for otherness. Sin is the violation of God's image in us, which is precisely the image of God's for otherness. And so the, the vast diversity of ways that we sin create ripple effects in the world. People, relationships, social structures, creation, causing all kinds of harm and destruction, lack of peace, ultimately killing us. Sin stretches out from the past to the future, it's generational, so we tend to repeat patterns and cycles of those who came before us and what was modeled to us, and sin is systemic. We're all entangled in webs of sin that are difficult to remove ourselves from, like I woke up this morning and I put on my shoes and my pants and my shirt, and I really have no idea if the clothes I'm wearing today were made by someone who somewhere was is being exploited, paid like a dollar to a day to slave away in a sweatshop somewhere to make that clothing. So we are all in the process of healing from sin. And so the confession question becomes all right, how, how much are we prepared to admit the mixed bag that we all are? We tend to either exaggerate or ignore our upsides and our downsides. We either completely beat ourselves into the ground with shame or we arrogantly tell ourselves, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with me. I always do the right thing. But the truth is, we're pretty complex bundles of psychological baggage and generational factors and self-defeating habits and emotional issues and compulsions and addictions and competing desires and inner demons and purpose and meaning and motivations and things we want to ignore. And we struggle to know what we really want. We're masters of self-deception. We want more than one life. And we want to be more than one person. The research, psychological, sociological research, says the truth is you're a much worse person than you think you are. And you are a better person than you think you are. And so... When it comes to sin, confessing sin, of course it's easiest to just shrink your idea of sin down to a list of taboo actions that other people do. And that way you really don't have to do the hard inner work of facing your own mixed bag, your own false self and true self and all of the sin that's within you. So why does James think that this practice of mutual confession is important? Like, why can't we just confess to God and go it alone? Why isn't that good enough? Scripture makes it clear that God's forgiveness precedes our confession and our repentance. So it's not like God is waiting for us to confess so that God can forgive us because you and I are already forgiven. And James says that same thing. Scripture says that. Scripture makes that clear. You are forgiven. But the question is, what happens when you are simply left to your own sense of forgiveness, when you're left with your own sin and may or may not be confessing it and then trying to get a sense of forgiveness. Well, I think that's harder and heavier than we want to admit sometimes. So imagine it different. Imagine that you get together with a friend or friends, and you are willing to receive hard questions from that trusted friend. And they ask you to dig pretty deep. Like they ask you some questions such as, what are the temptations that you faced lately? And how did you respond? Is there anything that you're holding back that you need to surrender to God? What are you avoiding? What would you like to escape from? How would you like to soothe your pain in ways that won't help? What lies have you believed about who you are and where your value and worth come from? Is there someone you fear or dislike or disown or criticize, hold resentment towards, disregard, are envious of? In what ways have you been tempted to orient your life around money, wealth, things? What regrets do you have? What good did you fail to do that you knew to do? What did you do this past week that reminds you of patterns and cycles from your family of origin? How did you find yourself entangled in systemic sins this past week? What don't you want to talk about today? That's a lot of questions. Those are deep questions. But imagine if you responded candidly. Even if you didn't cover all of them, if you covered some of them. There's something that happens through the process of Transferring shame-filled memories and feelings and motives into words. Not words that you choose carefully to make sure that you don't sound too bad, but words where you just candidly say, here's what happened, here's what I did, here's what I was thinking. There's something that happens in hearing yourself say it out loud. There's something that happens in moving from blame or justification to simply saying, I did that. Taking full responsibility, naming out loud the full impact of your actions on everyone else. At first, you might only explore your actions, like I did this and that, but the longer you stay with it, the more you want to explore the why, like what's going on with my motives and what lies am I believing and living out of and what truths about who I am, am I ignoring? And there's something that happens in pulling back the layers of the onion, so to speak, and exploring, wow, I've got some mixed up motives and exploring your own pain and the lies that you're believing and, what's going on inside of you and hearing yourself say it all out loud has an impact, but that's only part of it. Instead of being left to your own sense of forgiveness, imagine if after you say it all, your friend says out loud to you, you are forgiven. You are released. You are loved. Jesus' first words of the resurrection, he breathes on his disciples and says, peace be with you. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. So imagine that your friend goes on to remind you of who they know you to truly be. You are known and wanted. You are never alone. You're able to succeed. You are loved and appreciated and protected and celebrated and wanted. You can make choices. Jesus loves you. He forgives you. I just know it. And I love you too. But it doesn't even end there because imagine now you you ask your friend those same questions about their life. The tables turn, and now they enter into a time of confession. And so now you are hearing that you are not the only one who struggles. You are not the only one who believes lies. You are not the only one who falls off the wagon in a million different ways. Now you are the one who gets to breathe out those words of Jesus, the words of healing, you're forgiven, you're loved, this is who I know you to truly be. And then you end by praying for the spirit to help you both be who you were created to be, for the spirit to release you and free you from all that is not your true self. And how can an experience like that not be healing? I can describe it to you. I just did. But only you can experience it. Only you can pursue an experience like this and actually make it happen. Which leads us to the final question of the day, which is, okay, who's going to sit across the table from me? Who do I confess to? And what's the criteria for that person? Like, how do I find this person? When you ask someone to join you in mutually confessing sins, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're prepared for that person to become your advice giver, your mentor, or your life coach. What if they don't agree with you about your definition of sin? Do they need to agree with you about your definition of sin? Like, what if you start confessing something as sin and they jump in and start telling you, oh no, that's okay. That's no big deal. That That's not sin. You don't need to confess that. Or what if they're waiting for you to confess something that they think is sin, but you don't. And now they're suddenly trying to rope you and hogtie you for something that you really don't have any sense of conviction about. You don't feel like you're doing anything wrong. And experiences like that mess it all up. They mutate confession of sins into quibbling and quarreling and judging one another. You don't have to look very far in Christian history or at the world around you to realize that what one Christian calls sin, another Christian does not call sin. In James' letter... He specifically points out that sin is not a one-size-fits-all condition. But he points out that what is sin to one person may not be sin to the next person. He says if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So when I'm looking for someone to confess my sins to, when you're looking, do we have to agree on all of our definitions? of sin in order to be able to mutually confess our sins and be healed? Well, James has already addressed this in chapter 4, James chapter 4. He says, Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And then James ends the letter, his final words of the entire letter. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So, Think about the people in your life who actually ever helped you turn from the error of your way. What does that look like? What did they do and what did they not do? What was it that was the most impactful to you? For a lot of people, if someone gets up in their face and tries to argue it out, that doesn't turn them around that often tends to make them just want to double down. Like they turn off, they dig in. For me, if I'm speaking personally, the people who have helped me to see the error of my way, they were safe. I knew that I could trust them while I explored and unpeeled my layers and they asked questions they invited me to explore possibilities and aspects i hadn't considered but the key is they let me answer my own questions uh the conversation around like the the language gets used motivational interviewing it's this idea of they are not making declarations They are staying with me while I come to this point of realizing, wait a minute, something is not well within me. Something in my life has become unmanageable or dysfunctional or harmful. It doesn't line up. This part of my thinking, this part of my living needs to change. Uh, They ask me questions about What is it that would make you want to change? They help me explore my own motivations. And their primary characteristic, the thing that makes it all possible to turn from the error of my own way, is their love. So what is it that turns someone from the error of their way and covers a multitude of sins? As James says, it's love. I find it fascinating that the Apostle Peter picks up on this exact same phrase that James uses to end his entire letter, covering over a multitude of sins. And just one page away in your Bible, you can find in First Peter, you can find Peter using this same phrase. He says, above all Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So how do you choose a confessor? How do you choose who's going to sit across the table from you? The most important criteria you need to look for is finding someone who loves well. I don't mean romantic love. I mean unconditional love more than looking for someone who is cut from the same cloth or struggles with the same kinds of things that you do or someone who is in the same life stage or they're well-versed in the Bible or they hold your same interpretation of Scripture or they're highly intelligent or good at convincing people to see things their way or they're highly conservative like you or highly liberal like you or whatever other criteria you're going to put in there. None of that adds up to healing power. Facing our own blind spots, changing our attitudes, getting rid of old habits, facing generational patterns, all that stuff can take decades of God patiently working with us. And the Spirit is the guide to that journey. The confessor, the person you're sitting across the table from is not the guide but you need that person across the table as someone who can love you on that journey so that you're not left to your own sense of god's forgiveness someone who can see you for who you are beyond your darkest most shameful secrets and breathe those resurrection words of jesus over you you are forgiven You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And then pray for you. So how do you start? Well, it's an intentional enough practice. I don't think you're going to accidentally slip your way into it. I think you have to ask someone or someones, hey, would you be willing to try something like this with me? How long? Like, maybe you don't sign on for forever right away. Maybe you say, let's try it for three or four months. See if this works. Confidentiality is crucial. You have to be prepared from the outset to leave whatever is shared with Jesus and only with Jesus. The only exceptions are if the confessions fit the criteria of like a mandatory reporter. Like someone is in danger. Of hurting themselves or hurting someone else, you are looking for someone who will love well and who can say over and over and over, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. So, just one final reflection or discussion time. If you're listening with someone else, watching with someone else, chat with them. Name one aspect of mutual confession of sins that sounds potentially healing to you, and one question you still have, and pray for me. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from NETARTS Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to netartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.